Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hello and welcome to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro, and we're here on another episode. You guys have got a special guest here today. I'm excited to introduce you to him. Um, at the recording of this podcast, the sky in Reading is covered in smoke. Uh, there's, there are fires going on in California. It's crazy this is happening again. You can smell it in the air and it's miles away. It's so strange. I'm having flashbacks a couple years ago when we had the car fire and a bunch of people from my world, we just took away, we took off like four days like fleeing because the fire was like right across the road from my house. It was crazy. Anyway, so that's currently happening. Um, God send rain. Um, I've got uh, a special guest for you guys today. Listen, little background. When I was in first year at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, this man came and spoke at school and blew my mind. I, had, I think at that point I had never heard someone this revelatory and using the Bible to depict intimacy and history with the Lord. It was like, I don't know, it was like being at a magic show. That's such a weird way to say that, but I just remember being like, how is this happening? What is going on? It just, it was so fresh and deep and this, this, the presence in the room was profound. Um, so you guys, I've got Randall Worley on the podcast today. Um, Randall, do you want to say hi to everybody? Hello, everybody. Hi, Mike. <laughs> hi. Great um, to be with you. Yeah, thank you. I, Randall, I think a lot of people in my world probably don't know who you are, which is such a great opportunity here. Um, I'd love to give, just give them a bit of a background from you. So would you mind just sharing um, who you are, what you do, and then maybe just even a little bit of how you got into that, um, just to get us started? Yeah, I'll do my best to give you the abbreviated version, which is not my uh, area of expertise. Uh, usually, I am far too verbose when it comes to that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, I was born and raised in a classical Pentecostal organization. And when I say that, I say that with all due respect, but it was a very cloistered world. Uh, it was a world that... Um, was very exclusionary, um, did not have any tolerance for anything outside of their belief system. And uh, so that was, you know, in my early years of spiritual formation, that was what I was accustomed to. But I have always, you know, and I don't mean this to sound, um, you know, over the top, but I've always had somewhat of a nonconformist gene. Mm. And um, so that that's not meant to, to sound like, uh, you know, I'm just some rebel. But, uh, you know, over the years, people have asked me this question consistently when they find out what my background is. And they wanted to know how I evolved to where I am now. And I always respond the same way and say that for whatever reason, God chose to give me a greater faith to receive revelation than a fear of being deceived. Wow. And so early on in my early 20s, I uh, committed myself 
to reading those things that were not necessarily in the bibliography of my organization. Mm. And um, I was, again, not afraid of deception and uh, found myself discovering authors that I'd never heard of before, uh, many of which were not a part of our tribe or our stream. And I, I phrase it this way without any apology whatsoever. I found that my consciousness was expanding exponentially and it's continued to do so. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote a manifesto about, I don't know, three, four years ago that I titled Questioning My Answers, a manifesto for spiritual searchers. And, you know, it's, it's rather brief, maybe 75, 80 pages. And in it, I began to unpack some of those things that I had wrestled with for so many years in the early years. And I came to the conclusion that if we never ask, or if we are afraid, I should say, of the answers, we'll never ask the difficult questions. And so, you know, I closed the manifesto by saying, that the jury is still out for me on a lot of different subjects. But one thing I do know, I'm not satisfied with the answers that I have had up until this point. Mm. And I beat this drum all the time. I think people may be tired of hearing it. <laughs> but I think, I think we need to demonstrate a degree of intelligent humility that recognizes that what we have known in the past is not necessarily inaccurate but very possibly incomplete. Mm. And, you know, I draw from the example of when Apollos in the book of Acts uh, encounters Aquila and Priscilla. And I love the way Luke describes Apollos. It says that this man, he gives him, you know, some pretty major accolades. He said, this man was mighty in the scripture and that he was eloquent in speech. And that's quite a skill set. Not only did he have a great grasp of the scripture as they had it in that in, a, in that form at that time, but he was also an eloquent uh, communicator as well. But when he met Aquila and Priscilla in conversation with them, the scripture says, Luke says this of him, that they explained to him more perfectly the way, which reflects what I was saying, that what I had known all those years was not inaccurate, but it was incomplete. And so I've been on this uh, pursuit. I you know, I pray every day, as the Catholic mystics refer to, I pray every day for the beginner's mind. Mm. Uh, I, to me, being born again is not a description of what just happened to me in my initial conversion experience. But being born again is a continual process. You know, the word repentance has to do with the changing of the mind, the transforming of the mind. And that's what, you know, at my age now, 42 years in ministry, I'm still in pursuit of that. Um, so, I mean, that, that was a, a very brief background on me. I, I evolved through uh, that particular organization that I called a classical Pentecostal organization that was rather legalistic and somewhat narrow-minded in their belief system. Um, from that, you know, into the charismatic streams, the prophetic community, the, you know, those who preach the present reality of the kingdom of God. And so, see, I, Mike, you, you already know this about me. I, I've always loved progressive thinkers. And, and I actually, uh, I can say this with all sincerity. 
I'm delighted when I've discovered that I've been wrong about certain things because what that means is I'm still learning. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, I, I came out to Reading over 20 years ago. That's a long story as to how that happened. I didn't know those guys. They didn't know me. Uh, after that initial invitation, they probably were questioning whether it was a good decision to have me. Uh, and I say that in jest because I have a great relationship with that entire team out there. But I, I think that they have recognized what I described about my journey. They recognized that early on and they honored that and they haven't just tolerated me. I've felt celebrated there as well. Totally. Nice. Love it. Yeah. I mean, Randall, I think you and I share a lot of similar values in that space. And I love how you continue to engage in that conversation and continue to grow and learn. It's really inspiring and humbling. Um, for the sake of the audience understanding you on a, like a vocational level, what would you say, how would you describe to them what you do for a living? What do you, what do you do? Are okay. you a pastor? Are you a itinerant minister? Are you a philosopher? Like, what do you do? <laughs> Uh, well, I was in pastoral ministry for 27 years uh, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And I transitioned out of that 15 years ago and started traveling full time. And I travel, you know, around the world, speaking at churches and conferences and um, do a lot of leadership training. I've, uh, I've lost count of how many schools of ministry that I speak in throughout the country, Europe, Asia, South America. And um, so at present, um, even though it's been limited because of our situation right now in the country or globally for that matter, um, you know, I can, I continue uh, to go to churches that um, I'm in relationship with and relationship is very, very important to me. I, I never have been one that wanted just to book a, a date, you know, to go somewhere to speak and there not be the potential for relationship. Mm. Because in my opinion, all revelation grows in the soil of relationship anyway. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving today uh, for a meeting this weekend. Uh, it's only my third outing since the end of February. Wow. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of things online like this, a lot of things on Instagram. Um, uh, I'm in conversation almost every day with people from different parts of the country that uh, are just trying to navigate these uncertain times and looking for a voice of reason. And so, yeah, that's sort of what I'm doing right now. I, you know, I am involved in a coaching role with, with a handful of people. Um, this is not just confined to ministry, but also people in the marketplace. So I, I think that's probably a pretty fair summation of, you know, what we're doing right now. Yeah, nice. That's great. And we're going to talk about some of what's going on presently. Um, but I wanted to ask you, when you came and spoke, when I was in first year, I wanted to uh, ask you today about some of the things you mentioned there and just give you space to get to share. Um, you guys, before we get into this, I want to just, again, disclaimer. Randall has full permission to say whatever he wants to say, however he wants to say it. I may or may not agree with him, and that's totally irrelevant. I want him to get to just share what he has and where he's coming from. 
And I want all of us to get to just work through what's inspiring, what's affirming, what's offensive, whatever. I want us all to get to just work through that and for Randall to just have free reign. So please, Randall, go with whatever you want to share. Um, but you, yeah, totally. You mentioned, or you mentioned, you taught when I was in first year, like, was that 12 years ago, 11 years ago? Um, you were talking about intimacy with the Lord and you started with the garden and you continue to weave it throughout scripture. And I remember even like at some point we landed in the garden of Gethsemane and you were talking about the bride and the bridegroom. And um, I know this is like just scattered data points, but you were telling this overarching narrative that was revealed in scripture about the Lord's intention for us in our intimacy and relationship with him. I'd love for you just get to open up some of that here. Um, just as we get into this conversation, um, could you just share a bit about your journey and what you've discovered and the revelation you've received in that space? Yeah, I, um, I began to ask myself the question quite a long time ago, why, what was God's ultimate intention in creating this species called humans? Um, why did he even bother? Uh, it's ludicrous to suggest that he was suffering from a degree of loneliness. So why did he even bother to create the species called humans? And of course, for me, for many years, I had interpreted, as I mentioned, God's ultimate intention from Genesis chapter three, from the fall uh, of the, you know, of the human race, the, you know, the progenitors of the human race, they, they transgress, they fall. And so I'd started in Genesis chapter three to try to understand what God was up to. And I, I realized that was an egregious mistake that I had made. Um, because in many ways, if we start in Genesis chapter three with the depravity of man, the fall of man, and we, and we follow the thread all the way through to the end of scripture, it's almost like showing up to a very uh, complicated movie that has a very complicated plot and you show up 15, 20 minutes late and you're trying to understand the plot and you can't because you weren't there in the beginning. Mm. And so to me, the four most important words in the entire Bible are in the beginning God, in the beginning God. We have to go back and see what it was that he intended for humans who he would make in his image. And so, you know, we go back to Genesis chapter one, to the creation account, and we see that he formed man from the dust of the earth, like this master artisan, he sculpts out of the dirt, this human that would bear his exact image. And you have him, you know, this is, this probably would be offensive. You already mentioned that I could be offensive. Uh, this probably could be offensive to a lot of people, but you know, if we can picture this in our mind's eye, the creation account after he has formed him and sculpted him like a potter would a piece of clay. And he stoops over this lifeless form and he resuscitates him or he breathes into him, breathes into his nostrils, the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. This actually is a, a very vivid picture in as much as that he is overshadowing the man in the same way that he had overshadowed the, the creation itself. This is a picture 
the ultimate picture of intimacy. If I could go so far to say, this is the imagery of copulation. And he, when he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the reason why I think that's important to mention is that you can go back in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and you see where people who are raised from the dead are often raised from the dead by the prophet or even Jesus laying on over this person mm. in the same way that we see the creation. Does that making sense? Yeah. In the same way we see the creation unfold. Mm. So that kind that probably could be offensive to a lot of people, but the imagery is still there. Now, can you imagine what it is like when Adams, he gets that first breath, you know, he takes this breath and his heart, thuds for the first time and blood rushes to all of his extremities and he opens his eyes. And when he opens his eyes, he sees stooping over him, the one who had created him in his own image, the mirror image of who he is. You see, this to me is so important to understand, especially as we are always trying to understand our relationship with God from the standpoint of our own human depravity and not returning to his original image, which was goodness and innocence. So when he opens his eyes, that's what he sees. He sees his own reflection. So again, you see, God, God didn't create man because, you know, he was experienced in boredom. I know that sounds sacrilegious to some people. He wasn't bored with the myriad of angels that were constantly around his throne paying homage to him because he's not some cosmic egomaniac. Uh, God also did not intend to make this inferior, and I emphasize the word inferior species, knowing that they would eventually fail and it would give him an opportunity to judge them. Because see, that's, that's the picture a lot of people have of God is that he is a judge. So, you know, all right, so he's bored with the angels. He's, you know, he's in need of dragging somebody into his courtroom to judge them. He didn't create man because, you know, he had this brainchild creating the, the visible manifested universe, and he's going to create this planet called Earth. And it, you know, it's going to be filled with vegetation and all kind of life. And I'm going to need a custodian for it. That's not what he, that, that was not his intention. Mm. Another thing that might be a little offensive that I would suggest about this whole image is that this is the first picture of adoration or what we'd call worship. I think a lot of what happens in our worship services um, really is not going after the right goal because it just increases people's sense of inferiority rather than it's restoring their original identity. So you actually have the picture of God adoring his creation. He's the one who has bowed over his own creation. I know that that's a revolutionary idea for a lot of people, but let's put it. Right. Are you saying that in this context, God is worshiping Adam? Right. Because we've not, we've not understood worship. We've not understood adoration. Uh, now, again, you've already warned people that I might be offensive, but let me put, let me put it in a, in a different way. Whenever we procreate, whenever we procreate or we have children, they are made in our image to a great degree, aren't they? Yeah. And they are the product of our love in the same way Adam was the product of God's love. Mm. 
All right. So people shouldn't have a problem with that. Correct. And so when you see a mother holding her newborn baby and she it has it cradled in her arms and she's looking at this child and there's all this discussion, especially in the early weeks and months as to, oh, I think he looks like his father or I think she looks like her mother. And, you know, they, she has his nose and her lips and all, the, all those kinds of things. Well, it's ridiculous to suggest that those parents are in their adoration of their child that is creating their image, that they are thinking one day you will be able to appreciate me and to adore me, adore me. No. Mm. Do, you, do you see my point that I'm making here? Yeah. So, you know, you wanted to talk about intimacy and this is, this is where we are introduced to intimacy in the beginning. Actually, it, intimacy predates that when we look at the relationship that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and these, are, these are references to the expression of the Trinity that to me have been extremely limited and misunderstood. We have, because we are finite, we have to refer to God in gender specific terms because we are finite and because we are humans and because we, we live in the unit of family, we have, to re, we have to have some way of expressing who God is and what his nature is and what his essence is. So he's a father, there's a son, there's the Holy Spirit. Well, think about this the Father, and there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit that moves upon the face of the deep is the word ruach, from which we get the word wind, but it also is feminine in gender. Consistently through Scripture, it's feminine in gender. So you have a Father, Son, and you have the feminine aspect of the, of, of the Trinity right there, which produces, uh, produces one in their likeness. Now, when God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul, where was the woman? Where was the, uh, where was the feminine aspect of the species? <coughs> Excuse me, the woman was in the man. In Genesis, Genesis 5, it says he called their name Adam. Now I might be getting to where you really wanted to go. He called their name Adam. So the woman was in the man. Why is that important for us to understand? Because God is neither male nor female. He's both. So he created them in union with one another. And the only reason why that he separated them is so that they could procreate in their image in the same way he had created them in his. So we have this awesome picture that takes place there in Genesis, which is mirrored on the cross. So Adam is put into a deep sleep, isn't he? And the woman is taken from his side. Where do we see that reflected in the Gospels? When Jesus is hanging on a cross, he actually looks down at his mother. You remember this exchange? Yeah. He looks down at his mother and he looks down at John and he said, woman, behold your son. He looks at John and he said, 
behold your mother. What is going on right there? What was that all about? Because there's seven different things that Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross. And what does that have to do with what I was referencing in, in the garden? Because the scripture would say in Genesis, and this is even before there were in-laws, that a man would leave his mother and father and cleave to his son. This is when there's only two human beings on the planet. So who are they leaving? And what does that have to do with what Jesus said when he's hanging on the cross in those last few hours of his life? He is leaving his mother so that he could cleave to his wife. Now, what does that mean? Because in the next few minutes, there's going to be a Roman soldier that's going to commit what appears to be a random act of brutality. He's going to stick a spear in his side and out of it is going to come blood and water. And he's going to say, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Here you have the first Adam in the Genesis and the last Adam that Paul would refer to in 1 Corinthians 10, mirroring one another. And it happens in close proximity to a garden because everything God has ever done starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. Now, I know we're trying to get our arms around quite a lot here. <laughs> Are you connecting the dots here? Yes. I mean, I have questions. I don't want to interrupt your thought process though. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. When we, when we go back to the garden and we see, I've already said it like two or three times, we see what God's ultimate intention is. It changes everything. It changes everything about our understanding of his character and what his desire is. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, think, think about the parallels. Whenever they ingested the lie, uh, whether people believe it was actual fruit or not is beside the point to me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ingested this lie, that they were not like him. You know, the question rose, God knows in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like him knowing as he knows. They ingested this lie, and when they did, what happened to them? Instantly, they became self-conscious. Think about how hard it is for us to understand because <clears throat> this is Adam and Eve, the prototype of all humanity. They're created in his exact image. I've often said Michelangelo would not be able to reproduce anything that would come close to what the, God's crown jewel of creation looked like, these pristine, flawless human beings. But oddly enough, in the moment they ingest the lie that they are separate from God, that they are less, from, less than God, that they are inferior to God, they instantly become self-conscious. God has not even confronted them yet. Imagine that. How could this man and this woman, in all of their pristine beauty and, and, and glory, how could they be self-conscious? They begin to make fig leaves and aprons to try to cover their shame. Uh, which, by the way, you know, I, I get a little weary of how that women always being referred to as the weaker vessel of passage in Peter that's taken out of context. 
how women are thrown under the bus. Uh, and all of this false teaching about authority and submission that has floated around for centuries and the, re you know, the resulting misogyny, um, you know, it's clear in Genesis that he gave them dominion, didn't give him dominion. He gave them dominion, but everybody wants to make Eve the scapegoat because she was the one that saw the fruit and it was desirable. But here's the, here's something that I would like to suggest. Why is it, you know, and of course it, when you read in, in the new Testament, you discover that, you know, Adam was not deceived. Why is it that the serpent went to the woman and not to the man? Why did he approach her? Was it because she was more susceptible to temptation? Was it because she was more vulnerable? My belief is the reason why that she went to the woman is answered in John chapter eight, I believe it is, when Jesus said concerning the father of lies, and he's making reference to something that originated in the garden, that's where the first lie was told, that spawned every other lie, that she, he went to the woman because the woman was the part of the human species that conceived seed. And if Satan is the father of lies, he wanted to inseminate the part of the human species with the lie of separation. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wow, geez, Randall. So, so why is it, you know, so they become self-conscious. And if we, you know, if we're talking about the parallels between what happened with the first Adam and the last Adam, religious art has severely, has really sanitized uh, the crucifixion. Because Jesus is not, his body is not only mutilated almost beyond recognition, but he's stripped naked. And he's hung on a cross on a busy highway. Think about that. Why is he stripped naked? Because he is restoring what was lost in the first Adam in this whole self-consciousness about how unworthy that we are. See, to me, it is even significant that Jesus is, is not just crucified in some random location. He is crucified on a hill called Golgotha. I've been there many times. It's called the Hill of the Skull. And the reason why it's called the Hill of the Skull is because when you, when you see it, the topography of that hill of skull or Golgotha, it looks like literally like a man's skull. Well, why, you know, why is that important for us to take note of? Well, it was in the original garden where man again ingested this lie the tr from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was something that happened in our minds. That's why in the book of Revelation, that you see souls under the altar before you can really get to the throne because you have to lose your mind in order to experience a throne room experience, a throne realm experience.
I may be rifting here too much. Well, okay, wait, hang on. <laughs> I have a question on something you said 19 points ago. When okay. you were talking about Jesus hanging on the cross and he's looking mm-hmm. at John and his mom and you made a comment, you referenced like, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his right. wife, right? You were referencing that in the moment of Jesus on the cross with John and his mother. Mm-hmm. What were you connecting to that piece? I, there's something that because, I don't think I... Because, because if in the garden, it is said that man would leave his mother and father, which he didn't have a mother and father, and cleave to his wife. It had to have a prophetic implication to it. So why would Jesus say seven specific things? Uh, and this one I cited, he looks at his mother and he said, woman, behold your son, looks at John and says to him, and obviously, you know, it looks like that he's giving the responsibility to John to be the custodian of his mother because he's dying, right? Mm-hmm. His side is opened up. Well, where do we see that, first of all? With Adam. With Adam. Yep. His side being opened up, and that's where his bride comes from. So what I'm saying is, is that he is leaving his mother in that moment so that he can cleave to his wife, his bride, that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5. You know, remember, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And we've made that all about a marriage counseling passage. You know, <laughs> husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And he talks about wives submitting themselves to their husbands. And that has been a verse of scripture that has been severely abused and misused. But he closes out the chapter by saying, this is, he said, what I'm talking about has to do with the mystery of Christ and his church. So what I'm saying in that moment on the cross, he is leaving his mother, his side is opened up, out comes blood and water so that he could cleave to his bride, to his wife. As a matter of fact, and there would be, I'm sure there's some scholars that would be watching this would can fact check it. But years, years ago, I was in New York, I believe. And I was, I was sharing this and um, I got to the part where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's speaking in Aramaic. He's not speaking in Hebrew. He's not speaking in Greek. A lot of people question whether even Jesus spoke Greek at all or understood. I don't know. But when I said that, there was a young man sitting on the front row who had been studying Hebrew and also dabbling in, in Aramaic. And I was, you know, telling the story about how Jesus was leaving his mother, his natural mother, the, sort, the origin of his flesh, that he might cleave into his bride, which is the church. And this young man started sobbing. And I didn't know what was going on. And he came up to me after the meeting and he said, you know what some translations say or what some translations interpret that statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me to me? I said, what? He said, some translators say that what Jesus was actually saying was my father, my father, why have you left me a bachelor? 
that's why he, that's why this young man's falling apart because he's connecting the dots. Why have you forsaken me? Where have we hear, where do we hear the word forsaken used the first time? That a man would leave or forsake his wife and cleave, or his, his, his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. So we're drawing the parallel that he's saying, my father, why have you left me a bachelor? Right. Where's my bride? Mm. Where's my bride? And I don't know how anybody could deny the connection between the story of the garden and the story of the cross. Because even leading up to the cross, have have you ever been to Israel? I haven't yet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think probably the thing that is so surprising to a lot of people that I've led on tours there is to discover how things are in such close proximity to one another. Essentially, Jesus could see the garden that he had been in the night before when he had been arrested. And he could also see the tomb from where he was hanging on the cross. It's that close together. Well, remember when he's in the garden and he's praying and you know the disciples fall asleep and while he's praying why is it that the writer would um, point out to us that his sweat became as great drops of blood a lot of people would assume that the reason why that his sweat became as great drops of blood he was under such strain he had Remember, he uses this language, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. I mean, this is metaphoric language. There's not an actual cup there. What is the cup that he is, say, if, it, if it's your will, let it pass from me. What is this cup that he's referring to? The cross. Yeah, he's talking, well, I, I think he's actually talking about how he is ingesting the iniquity of all of humanity prior and after. Mm. You know, if, if you want to talk about how is it that you become immune to something, then you have to have something introduced into your body in small doses that causes your body to create an immunity to it. So he is ingesting the iniquity of all of humanity prior and in the future. And so did his sweat become as great drops of blood because the capillaries in his forehead were under such strain and stress that he began to exude blood from his forehead. Is that the reason why? Or do we just employ a a basic principle of interpretation or hermeneutic and we go back to the first time that sweat is even mentioned? By the sweat of your brow. Yep. The curse that was pronounced upon Adam was that by the sweat of his brow that he would toil with the earth and it would bring forth thorns and thistles. And, you know, one could say, well, that just means that now he is going to have to labor and experience, you know, the stress of labor. He's going to become, uh, you know, an agriculturalist. He's going to have to plow the ground and plant seed because he's no longer in a garden that is just producing of itself or, we could see that the imagery is even richer because now 
Adam has a total sin consciousness and not a God consciousness. Before this, he had a God consciousness. Now he has a, a total sin consciousness. And I believe that what he is saying is that we would toil with the source from which we came because he came from the ground, didn't he? Mm. Which is what all of us do. We toil with the soil that we live in and it brings forth thorns and thistles. Well, there's imagery again. In John 19, was it a random act of brutality that the Roman soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head? Was it just them, you know, being even further brutal to him or was it mockery? No, I believe that all of that, Jesus, his sweat, becoming as great drops of blood speaks to how that he has redeemed us from the sweat of our own thinking that we can improve this soil that I live in. And he took that crown on his head, those things that pierce like hypodermics in my mind that are constantly reminding me of not of, of what I'm not instead of who I am. Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, Randall, what are people in my position supposed to do when you're saying all this? <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that there are a number of people because I've encountered this for at least 25 years. Uh, when they, when they hear, my perspective on these things. And, you know, for those that are watching, uh, they, they need to give me a little latitude here and, and know that what I've just shared with you in the last few minutes is usually something that I take several hours right, right. to unpack. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but there, there are a lot of people that would question my hermeneutic or my principle of interpretation uh, they would say, I'm sure that I am, um, that it's almost esoteric in nature, that uh, I'm, I'm violating a lot of principles of interpretation, uh, to which I would say, uh, you know, my response to that is that Paul made it clear when he's talking about the wisdom of God, he referred to it as the manifold wisdom of God, or it has many facets to it. Uh, in the rabbinical community, a common saying uh, in the rabbinical community is that the Torah itself has 70 different faces. What does that mean? It has 70 different perspectives to it. When Paul uses the word manifold, the manifold wisdom of God, I think what he is essentially saying that whatever we're reading in the scripture, it has many different facets to it. You know, it's like a diamond. If a diamond is properly um, uh, fashioned by a gemologist, it can have up to 57 different facets. So to, to limit these passages of scripture just to their historical or their grammatical or uh, 
you know, implications, I think, I think is, is a mistake. Uh, like, I, like I've already said, uh, most of what I've been talking to you about in just the last few minutes is a very condensed version mm. of uh, what, what we teach um, concerning, uh, you know, us bearing God's image. No, Randall, if people wanted to learn more, like go deeper into what you're talking about, do you have resources somewhere they could grab to get deeper into this conversation or how would they, or could you send people to get more of what you're saying here? Oh, gee. Uh, <laughs> at, at present, uh, I don't have a lot of this particular content in my archives. Uh, I'm sure, you know, if they took time on the internet, they probably could, you know, find some of this. Uh, years ago, I taught a series uh, that is taken from Colossians chapter one that is titled the mystery of Christ in you. And uh, we talk a lot about these things in that particular series. <clears throat> you know, Paul said in Colossians chapter one, that there is a mystery that has been hid from the ages and from generations, but is now made manifest, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And um, so in that, uh, I, I start in the garden and I try to show the anthology of redemption to help people to see that you can start in the garden and you can follow it all the way through. It's a, it's a seamless thread that goes all the way through the scripture. Um, but you know, we, uh, they can, they can order some of our books uh, then go to our website and order books. Uh, one in particular is uh, Brush Strokes of Grace. Um, wrote this book several years ago, Finding Grace in a Graceless World. Mm. Um, some of the things that I've talked about today would not be addressed uh, in that particular book, uh, but that's probably a good start. Okay, and what's the <clears throat> website they would go to, to to find that? Just randallworley.com. Perfect, and that's your Instagram handle as well. Uh, the Randall Worley. The Randall Worley. Okay. So I'll, your name will be in the title of this episode so they can easily just find the spelling correctly and then search the internet or Instagram to find you. That's great. <clears throat> now, Randall, I also know you've been, especially as of late, given the climate that we are in as a country, as, as the world even, just the things that are coming up that people are facing and experiencing, especially on a spiritual level, you were having dialogue with, with leaders um, about what's going on. Um, would you care to open up any of that, what you're, what you're going after in that space here? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, <clears throat> the thing that I'm hearing the most from people, the question, the gnawing question is, when are we gonna go back to normal? Mm. What, you know, when can we expect a reset? Mm. I, I, I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm about to say, but I don't think that we're returning to what we have known in the past as quote unquote normal. Mm. I think this is a tremendous opportunity. If we can capture what uh, Walter Brueggemann phrases as being capture a prophetic imagination. Um, Recently, in some of the meetings, I've talked about an apocalyptic imagination. 
usually when people in modern culture, whether it be the broader culture or church culture, when they hear the word apocalypse, they immediately assume that the connotation of that word is something that is cataclysmic in nature, that we are heading toward a cliff, the, the quote unquote end of the world as we know it. And I don't agree with that. The word apocalypse means unveiling, to disclose. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, that, that word, that English word is apocalypso, which means to unveil or to uncover. And so, you know, I've, for years, I've, I've taught a different perspective, and it's not unique to me. You know, you have preterist theologians, and I don't consider myself a through-and-through through preterist, but have taught that the book of Revelation is historically fulfilled. It's already been historically fulfilled. I, I would agree with that, but I think that there's also the mystical aspect of the book of Revelation. But 25 years ago, when I taught the book of Revelation in our church, and we still have some people occasionally that request that content. Uh, I taught, I taught 33 weeks in our church, the church that I pastored on the book of Revelation. I left out chapters two and three. And, um, you know, I started out very, um, very, very, in a very, very elementary way by introducing it this way. John said, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, all my life, I'd been taught that the book of Revelation was about the Antichrist and about the tribulation and about the mark of the beast and about nuclear exchange between nations and all those kinds of things. <clears throat> and then, you know, he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was sent and signified to his servant, John. And the word signified means to be written in signs and symbols. And probably one of the most, well, the most symbolic book in all the New Testament is the book of Revelation. There are, I think, about 600 references to the book of Ezekiel in the book of Revelation. And if you don't understand the symbolism and the, uh, if you don't understand the imagery that is there, then you're going to, you're already positioned to come to wrong conclusions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because he would go on to say, you know, one of the fundamental laws of, of biblical interpretation is you have to understand who it was first written to before you can understand what it means now. Otherwise, you take things out of context. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Because by the time he gets to verse 3, he said, Blessed are those that read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. And then he proceeds in chapters 2 and 3 to talk to seven churches that existed in his time. And he's telling them, <coughs> excuse me, 2,000 years ago, if you read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy, you're going to be blessed. Well, how is it that we can take current events and superimpose, uh, superimpose what's going on in, in current events over the imagery in the book of Revelation? How, how can we do that? But we have done that, haven't we? because we violated that 
that principle of interpretation that I referenced before I could understand any book of the Bible and what it means to me now, I have to understand what it first, what it meant to those to whom it was first written. Mm. And so I, I guess probably I spent too much time on that. I'll just, I'll just say this, you know, John is writing to them. He's a political prisoner. He's been exiled to the island, Isle of Patmos, which is like the first century Alcatraz, you know, for incorrigible criminals. And, um, says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And this is when this cosmic opera unfolds before him. <laughs> and he sees, in my opinion, the entire finished work as it unfolds in these 22 chapters that we have recorded for us. I, I have this tendency to think that he might have been standing there on, at, on the seashore on the Isle of Patmos, looking back across the sea, wondering about how those churches that he was in a relationship, wondering how they were, they were under severe Roman persecution. You know, they were being slaughtered. You know, they were being, they were dying grotesque deaths. And suddenly he has this unveiling. You know, there wasn't a pandemic but for them, the world was coming to an end. The temple had been destroyed. There's no going back to what had been normal. Mm. They were being positioned for a new norm. And by the time you get to chapter four, he sees a door that is opened in heaven. And he has the invitation to step through that door. And of course, he describes in great detail what he sees. He sees the throne of God. And he sees around the throne a rainbow. And he describes it in great detail, which leads you from there into chapter 5, into uh, seeing this scroll that is sealed. And this, this all, I don't have time to get into all that but it's a very redemptive vision that he has. What does that have to do with today? Well, we're not going back to, you know, and I'm sure people, you know, want to challenge me on this. We're not going to go back to what we have known in the past as being normal. When you say we just mean all of society, you're talking about certain aspects. All, all of society, all of society. And so <clears throat> what is the revelation? Why is that so important to us right now? so that we can begin to see that if we respond as John did to step through this door that was opened, then we can begin to see things from the perspective of the throne and not the present danger that we're in right now. Mm. Now, why, why, why does he see around the throne a rainbow? Because the first time that we have a rainbow in the scripture, God gave us this prism in the sky to remind us that he would never destroy or allow the world to be destroyed again by a flood. You know, for everybody that is convinced that this is the precursor to the end of the world, 
I just go ahead and tell them right now, the end of the world's not in our future, the end of the world's in our past. In Hebrews chapter nine, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And then he goes on and talks about how that Christ suffered once in the end of the world as a sacrifice for all men. Did you hear that? It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Now I, I've heard that for years in funerals, especially when there were quote unquote sinners there. You, know, you got this casket in front of you and the pastor's up there that's saying, it's appointed unto man once to die. All of us are going to die. And after that, the judgment, but they don't read the rest of the verse, the rest of the passage. So also Christ offered himself a sacrifice in the end of the world. So to me, the end of the world is not in our future. The end of the world is in our past. Randall, you're saying the world ended already. Yeah, it's already ended. <laughs> so, I mean, just for the sake of some of the listeners here, if you're like, hey, the world ended, and, and they're like, well, then what, are, what is this now? If the world ended, what are we experiencing? What would you say to that? Well, first of all, you know, every, every, uh, every generation that has preceded us has been convinced that they were the terminal generation. So we're being confronted with our generational pride hmm. and thinking that we're the ones, this is the end. I mean, if you could interview people, and I'm sure that there are people still alive that were alive during the days of Hitler, most of them were convinced that he was the Antichrist, especially because of the Holocaust. They were absolutely convinced that he was the Antichrist. They believed that they were experiencing the end of the world in the same way a lot of people believe that they're experiencing the end of the world right now. That's why I said every generation has believed that they were the terminal generation. And that's just one example. I mean, you could go, you go, go further back in history and see that that is true. I'm not minimizing what's going on, Mike. I, and I tell people all the time, I am concerned, but I'm not consumed by this. And that's not meant to sound just like, you know, play on words. I'm concerned, but I, I'm not going to be consumed by it. Now, I've had a flood of messages, you know, people wanting to know about Oh, I'm going to be careful. I have to be careful. <laughs> Wanting to know about, you know, new technology. And do you think that this has to do with the end time and the tribulation? And, you know, with all due respect, I just, um, I defer or I, you know, I choose not to get engaged in that conversation. I don't, I'm not in denial by any means. But we either believe that Jesus rose from the dead with the keys of death, hell, and the grave, or we don't. I think a lot of people right now, their unveiling, their apocalypse is that they're discovering that they have been practical atheists all along. Wow. You're talking about Christians. 
Yes. <sighs> yep. Practical atheists. Whoa. Yep. So, Randall, what would you say to people listening? Um, yes, there's concern about things going on, but we're not consumed by this. What are you dwelling on instead of dwelling on everything that's going wrong or every argument that's coming your, your way that's inviting you into being upset about something and consumed by it? What are you consumed by instead? Oh, it's not, it's not really profound <laughs> at all. It's just, you know, I am having further, uh, I'm having a greater apocalyptic experience of the goodness of God. I am leaning in as much as I possibly can every day to allow him to give me a prophetic imagination. Uh, I'm not willing you know, as is pointed out in the Psalms, to hang my harp on the hill, uh, on the on the willow, just because you know we're over here in Babylon. Um, like I said, it's it's not particularly profound. I'm just just remaining focused on the on the goodness of God, and um, and they be. I'm sure a lot of people say, well, that you're in denial. Um, so they're, they're they're waiting on an evacuation. Are you talking about the the rapture? Yeah, mm. yeah. They're which is another subject altogether. <laughs> uh, they're they're waiting on a imminent evacuation, and um, as one man put it, I unpacked my bags a long time ago because the flight has been canceled. As far as I'm concerned, I do believe in the return of the Lord. I just don't believe in, in, that the church is leaving. You know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the heavens, the heavens are his, but the earth he is given, given to the children of men. And so why, you know, if, if the mantra of most of the revival uh, movement has been thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we are waiting on an evacuation. We should be praying thy kingdom go instead of thy kingdom come. Okay, so if the world has ended, but Jesus is returning, mm -hmm. how do you help people, recon especially if this is new for people, how do you help them reconcile? Obviously, we don't have time to unpack all this, but how do you reconcile Jesus coming back, but the world ended already, and the period between those two, I think most people seem to think are the same event, right? Mm -hmm. Like him returning is the mark of the end of the world. And you're saying, hey, the end of the world happened, he's coming, we're in a, a period what is, how do you understand that space that we're living in based on what you're describing thus far? <clears throat> well, a lot of it has to do with our understanding of the word world. Okay. Because the word world and earth are not synonymous. Okay. Hmm. You know, the word world has to do with eons or ages. Time periods. 
time periods. Okay. Exactly. And the reason why everything right now appears to be falling apart is because things have to fall apart so that other things can come together. And you can go, you can see this pattern even in the Old Testament, how that there were certain structures and systems that God allowed, but then they became obsolete, totally obsolete. And people wanted to cling to what was without understanding that he is the one who was and is and is to come. And so, but we think about that in a very linear fashion. He has, he was and is and is to come all at the same time. That's why he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we think about that in a very linear way. I mean, look at it this way. <clears throat> Doesn't the scripture say that, that uh, he was crucified before the foundation of the world? Does it say that? Yeah. Wait a minute. I thought it happened 2,000 years ago. No. See, here's the problem is that being finite, we live in time, but God doesn't live in time. He manifests his purposes in time, but he lives in eternity. A friend of mine years ago put it this way, beautifully, poetically. He said, time is nothing more than an island in the ocean of eternity where God manifests his purposes. And so this is, this is what is so problematic for us is because we are prisoners of time rather than being prisoners of hope, like the prophet said. Oh, my gosh. And so we don't, under, we don't understand, again, that he is the same yesterday and day and forever, that he was crucified before the foundation of the world, but it manifested in time 2,000 years ago. Well, let's go back to the garden for a minute. Remember when he's praying in the garden, Father, make them one as you and I are one? Question, Mike. Was he praying that these quibbling disciples who had been arguing about who was going to sit on the right hand when he came into his kingdom, <clears throat> was he praying that they might be unified? I don't think so. I think what he said, Father, make them one as you and I are one. Or where was the first picture of oneness that we referenced earlier in our discussion? In Adam. In Adam. Make them one as you and I are one and then <clears throat> then he you know he's praying and says you know if it be thy will let this cup pass from me and then then he the last thing they says i think it is just before the posse comes to take him in resting he says i have finished the work that you have given me and i am no longer in the world wait a minute he hasn't been arrested yet he hasn't been flogged yet. He hasn't been crucified yet. His body hasn't been put in a tomb yet. He hasn't raised from the dead yet. But he says, I have finished the work that you have given me. I am no longer in this world. See, so what happened when he was praying now you got to get this. What happened when he was praying in that garden, this little garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the wine press, 
what happened in prayer was he transcended time. And even though he had not been arrested, he had not been beaten, he had not been taken to the cross, his lifeless body had not been put in a tomb. He had transcended time in prayer. That's why you could say, I've already finished it. He's speaking prophetically, oh, I've seen that it's done, or he stepped into. Yeah. Think about it, Mike. So much of what is going on right now is has so rocked people's world and they've so lost their equilibrium and, you know, being sheltered in place. One of the things that my wife and I find constantly find ourselves saying, what day is it? (laughs) Do Do you find yourself doing the same thing? Sometimes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because, you know, we are so accustomed to structure. Yeah. Okay. And this, this has been such an interruption and to our schedules and our structure and such a disruption to our way of life. And it's revealing to us just how much we have been a slave to time. So, yeah, I, I'm going to try to come back to what you originally asked me. I, I, I want to be able to respond to the invitation that John was given. You know, he even, he even said to those believers in those seven churches, he said, I am your companion in tribulation. And I want to be, re- I want to be able to respond to that invitation to come up here. You know, he said, he saw a door that was opened up in heaven. And the voice said, come up here and I'll show you things. And, you know, that may be very mystical language for a lot of people. And there are a number of people that would say, well, that that was something that happened to John the Beloved 2,000 years ago. What relevance does that have for us now? I think we are at a threshold. I think we are at a very liminal space between two worlds, between two ages. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if we can hear the voice that is coming from the throne, and it's difficult because of the cacophony of voices that are out there right now that are creating so much uncertainty. Remember Paul's talking about the abuse of tongues in Corinthians, and he uses this metaphor. He said, um, if a trumpet gives forth an uncertain sound, how can you prepare for battle? Well, he uses the metaphor of the trumpet because a trumpet has always been a symbol of a prophetic voice. 
Now, that's not something that I've just concluded on my own. If you go back to Numbers chapter 10, and you're introduced to the use of trumpets in Numbers chapter 10, and each of those trumpets that were fashioned gave, gave forth a particular sound that indicated to Israel whether it was time to assemble for the feast or whether it was time for the encampment to move or they would hear a certain trumpet sound and they knew that this related to the gathering of the elders. So what I'm getting at here is if we're truly hearing a prophetic voice, it is extending an invitation to us to transcend what is going on in time right now and come into a throne room experience where we can see the throne that it has round about it a rainbow, which gives us hope and reminds us that God has already promised that he would not allow the earth again to be destroyed. That's what I mean, you know, an apocalyptic imagination. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, and the throne. So where's the throne? So yes, another. That's another myth that has to be um, debunked. Because when we hear the, when you read the word throne, you, you know you have images of maybe Solomon's throne that was, you know, on that was made out of ivory and and it's, you know, ornate. And that's not what he's talking about. The imagery for the word throne. You got to go back, you know, use the principles first mentioned. You go all the way back in the Old Testament. The throne was, uh, was initially referencing the Ark of the Covenant. So what was God's throne? It was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had a mercy seat on it, right? Yeah. 110 pounds of pure gold with cherubims formed out of it. And the glory of God resonated between the wings of the cherubim. God told him, he says, I'll speak to you from between the wings of the cherubim. But here's the, here's the importance here. It was a mercy seat. Isn't it Hebrews that said, we can come boldly before the throne of grace in the time of need? So I believe that there is a way to transcend everything that's happening right now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Dang, Randall. <laughs> oh. I kind of feel bad for our listeners. I don't know if I prepared them. I think I said what I thought I could. And right now they're, we're just listening to this and everyone we're like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> shoot. Hey, wow. what, what do you, what do you think if, if we could, if we could go back to the first century and we could bring John here to 2020, And we described to him what was all the upheaval that was going on in our world right now. 
and the widespread panic. And we told him, this is the end of the world. John the Beloved from the first century. They tried to boil him in oil, Mike. Mm. They tried to kill him in other ways. Decided, okay, what we're going to do is we're, you know, we're just going to exile him to this island called Patmos with all these other criminals. Maybe he'll die out there. Maybe somebody will murder him. And he gets this revelation that starts out with him stepping into the realm of heaven. And he begins to interpret for them what was first century current events and giving them perspective, remembering that he said, you'll be blessed when you read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. And we tried to convince them, it's really bad here now, John. The world's in a mess. People are dying because of widespread, you know, this, this virus, this pandemic. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I think he probably, you know, as we would put it, look at it at us and say, you guys need to get a grip. You think this is trouble? You think this is tribulation? Let me tell you about some of my brothers, you know, that the way they died is that Nero covered them in a flammable substance and tied them to a stake in his gardens to light his gardens at night. Okay. Let me tell you about some of my friends that have had all their limbs tied and tethered to horses while maniac crowds are screaming as they see them being dismembered and disjointed. Which by the way, that reference I've made and you can read about this in Josephus about how Nero would light his gardens with Christians time to estate. The irony of that story is that he lost his mind and he lost his mind. He went insane because he wasn't getting the result that he wanted. He thought that he would hear them scream in terror. How about when Paul said, though I give my body to be burned and have not love. That's what he's talking about. He lost his mind because he didn't hear them screaming in terror. He heard them singing in a language he was not familiar with. These first century believers are singing in the spirit as they are burning to death. It's convicting, isn't it? Yeah. So, hey, we're the generation that's going to see the end of the world. Come on. Yeah. Wow. And and don't misunderstand me. Things are going to get bad. They're going to get really bad. We haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) 
Uh, hey, do you, do you remember, it comes to mind, uh, do you remember, I know we've gone way over here. <laughs> yeah, we got to wrap it up. Um, do you remember uh, whenever the children of Israel in the Exodus, when they come out, <clears throat> that the scripture describes how the, the glory cloud that on the side of the cloud that they were on, it was light. And on the other side, it was dark. So my takeaway from that is, you know, because those that, those that were not a part of the nation of Israel, they saw things from a dark perspective. Those that were a part of the nation of Israel, they saw things from a light perspective. So right now, it, <coughs> excuse me, it just really depends on what side of the cloud you're on as to how you see it. Mm. That's why Paul would say, you know, we are not children of darkness, but we are children of light. Wow. All right, Randall, listen, I got to ask you this question. When <laughs> we got to land this, we got to land this thing. There's nowhere to land. Um, this just, I like to ask everyone who I interview on this podcast because of the confessions of the reformer piece, um, mm -hmm. a confession that you'd like to share on, you know, anything in your journey, in your field, your expertise, whatever you've come across, you're like, man, I don't know what to do with this. Or I, yeah, I want to confess, like, I think this, or I believe this or whatever. Obviously we've kind of, jump into some things that you are pro a proponent of that people like don't know what to do with. And I, I'm like curious what kind of emails we're going to get after this episode. But, um, do you have any kind of like you'd want to share in this interview on just anything from your journey that you're like, yeah, this feels relevant. Like oh, I, I could confess this. Yeah. I confess that for most of my life, that I needed certainty. I, I found security in my certainty. I wanted clarity. I wanted all of my difficult questions answered. And I've come to the realization that when we come to the end of all of our knowing, that's when we come to know God. And I think in the words of the Apostle Paul, I am doing my best to fellowship the mystery, recognizing that certitude, as one man said, is a sin. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. <laughs> and knowing that I have to take, you know, you've, 
you've probably been in places where they're trying to teach people to be a part of a team and they'll have them stand on the platform and there's a group of people that stand behind them and they take the, the quote unquote faith fall, you know, yeah. they just fall back. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm making every effort to do right now. I'm taking the trust fall. Wow. Oh my gosh. So I, and, and I, I confess that I have, um, I've believed my beliefs about God more than I've believed God. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Your confession. Nice. Thank you, Randall. Jeez. Yeah. You would. Yeah. So wow. It's like, it's like the philosopher said, you know, it's not what you don't know that gives you trouble as much as it is the things you're certain of that just aren't so. All right. Jeez. <laughs> okay. Wow. Randall, thank you for ruining all of our lives. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. It's been a genuine pleasure. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to go back over this and just, like, pick through it. And my goodness, that is... That's a lot. My, my apologies for being all over the map. No, I love it. I'm really grateful. I'm, I love that we got to have this conversation. Thank you for sharing all this and for going into it. And I know it takes energy and time to think through this. I, I really appreciate it. I, it's profound and fascinating and so thought-provoking. Well, I'm, you know, I'll tell you this. Uh, sometimes the greater miracle is not in the multiplying of the loaves and fishes, but in the gathering of the fragments. Mm. So maybe as you go back through this, people will gather fragments. Yeah, totally. Thank you, man. Randall, this has been so good. It's so dense and there's, yeah, you're right. I mean, frag, there will be fragments to collect <laughs> and meditate on and pull apart and be challenged by my goodness. I'm over here like, I have to like rethink some things in my life. This is crazy. <sighs> Thank you, Randall. I'm Thank honored you. to come on. I so appreciate you being here. Um, I'm so excited that we got to, that we're connecting, and I look forward to you know where all this goes. And thank you for your encouragement and correction and just our attitude and response to everything going on in the world today. Um, super encouraging and helpful. And you guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, Again, this is Randall Worley. So you can see his name in the title of this podcast. If you want to check out his Instagram account, he puts great quotes on a daily basis. I just, and he does interviews with people on his Instagram live as well. Um, so you definitely want to check out his Instagram account. It's a great resource. He has books, resources at his website. So you can go to randallworley.com to check out all that. Um, yeah, Randall, thank you so much for being here. We super appreciate it. And um, you guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, leave a, uh, leave a review, and we will see you at the next episode. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.